Greetings and welcome to Trauma and Social Work Podcast. You are listening to Tanya Octave, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. My goal is to provide education, resources, suggested practices, and understand more about the aspects of trauma and social work. This podcast is for you because we are all impacted by trauma. I am your host. Go grab your notepad, pen or pencil, a cup of warm tea, and let's get down to business. Disclaimer, this podcast is not intended for medical, psychological, mental health, or legal advice. You should seek out a professional for individual and specific questions regarding your overall wellness. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Welcome to episode six of the Trauma and Social Work podcast. Today we are going to talk about teenagers, one of my favorite topics. Adolescent development is often misunderstood. As an adult, we want teenagers to be compliant, have a sense of direction, and follow the rules. However, their development, at least in the U.S., we give them mixed messages. Adolescence is a period of becoming self-sufficient and independent. It is a time in our lives as an individual when we are allowed to explore our thoughts and beliefs separate from those of our parents and family members. Adolescents are permitted to push their boundaries with limited social and economic legal consequences. Parents are often frustrated for two reasons. One, they have their own unresolved stuff. And two, they want their teenagers to make healthy and positive choices in life that will eventually lead to financial and emotional security. The goal for most parents is to produce young adults who are contributing members of our society. I will share some information on developmental stages of adolescence and the connection to attachment theory. And then I'll talk a little bit about infancy and how it lays the foundation for adolescent development. And then I'll explore some challenges between parents and their teens. So let's talk about development in infancy. Humans are considered primate animals and remain in infancy longer than other mammals. Although human infants by nature are immature and helpless shortly after birth, they experience rapid growth and development over the course of a few months. By the first year, their brain develops in size and they can communicate their needs in a nonverbal way. A critical stage in early infancy development is the ability to learn and experience various arousal states. The infant is then allowed to become attentive and receptive to social and emotional stimuli. Early development such as this lays the foundation for later in life, particularly in adolescence when tensions and emotional regulations are high. If successfully accomplished in infancy, the teenager will have a strong sense of self and this will assist with their cognitive and social development. Self-regulation for an infant is largely the responsibility of the caregiver, parents who provide consistency and offer a variety of stimulation methods 
in response to their infant's state, mood, and interest will assist the child in developing the capacity to regulate. For example, caregivers who provide a variety of learning materials to the infant will increase their child's capacity to feel stimulated. Young children should be provided opportunities to play blocks, Legos, dolls, do crafts, music instruments, a variety. In, a different, in, a di in addition, there is a body of literature on attachment theory that reviews the various ways caregivers and infants will, come, will become connected to each other. This is a basic concept placed the importance on the quality of care provided by the caregiver that leads the infant's ability to have a sense of security. So let's talk a little bit about development and attachment. There are about four accepted forms or categories of attachment. Securely attached parents are often consistent while being cooperative and sensitive to their infant's needs in feeding and playing situations. For example, when the baby cries, he or she could not reach a toy, then you will see that the infant is notably anxious. The parent will comfort the child with a nurturing smile, good eye contact, and respond by engaging the child with a desired toy. The parent would play with the child as, and the toy together. And then you may have an avoided unattached parent where non-responsive or when they, are, when they can't be or they're not responsive to the infant's needs. The baby has no effort to engage the caregiver and even ignores the caregiver by moving or turning away. For example, the mother would pick the child up and make attempts to make eye contact or play peekaboo. And the infant turns away, avoids eye contact with the caregiver. This is also observed when the caregiver arrives to pick the child from daycare. Child pays no attention to the parent and goes on their usual activities as if the parent is not even there. Then you might have a resistant attachment, demonstrating challenges and the infant being able to be soothed or calmed and is often inconsolable. For example, a parent leaves the room and the child starts to scream ah, ah, in a high-pitched voice, kicks his or her feet, throws the toys or other objects across the room. These caregivers often report challenges with babysitting or leaving the child in daycare for short periods of time. A fourth observation is noted in children with disorganized, disoriented attachment. This form of attachment resulted from caregivers who are often intrusive and insensitive parents. The infant was often a victim of early childhood maltreatment or abuse. For example, a child who, let's say, was physically abused by his parents and suffered broken bones, maybe at one years of age, will feel disconnected from others. The child shows no interest in activities or others and does not engage socially or even in the environment. The child with this form of attachment is often present in a room with other adults and often goes unnoticed. Adults may sometimes assume this is an easy child because the child does not complain. 
This level of attachment is of particular interest to me in my work that I do with children. Most of my professional career has been directed towards children who have been abused, neglected, or in traumatized environments. In my job over the past 20 years, I have seen all levels of, of attachment from very young children to elderly, and they're still struggling with attachment issues. Teenagers raised in households where there is abuse or neglect concerns often become disorganized or disoriented from reality. In my observations, I see young people who struggle with having healthy and meaningful connections to others more than those children who were not abused or neglected. I also see they are in search for a family, someone who will love them, often ending up in other abusive, neglectful, and traumatizing situations. These levels of attachment lay the foundation in how adolescents will travel through other stages of their development. And so let's talk a little bit about sexual development. Now, I'm gonna mention Sigmund Freud, but that's just to kind of give us a basis of information. Freud was the one who at least gets credit for coming up with the psychosexual stages of development. And they usually are oral, anal, phallic, and latency. You know, Freud believed that all humans are sexual and aggressive beings and that this was a part of our standard development. In the oral stage, usually between birth to about one, the infant will explore the world through a series of gratifying and pleasurable experiences with their mouth. They'll walk or crawl around putting all kinds of objects in their mouth. They'll put their mouth on all other types of objects because that's how they're exploring their environment. And the transition into the anal stage, which is about from about one to about three, the toddler will explore the world through a series of pleasurable sensations involving their anus. This is where they learn the potty train. This can be a period of frustration and enjoyment both for the child and the parent. And then you have the phallic stage, usually about three to five years of age, the child explores their bodies through pleasures of the genitalia. For example, the toddler is learning to explore the genitalia more and can often be observed touching the genitalia in socially unacceptable or embarrassing places. I always say, I always say it's fun for adults to go ask their parents um, what was it like for me during my potty training years and see what response you get um, back from your parents. During latency, which occurs about 6 to 11 years of age, the child learns to feel emotionally connected to others and those who are helpful to meeting their needs. The child can regulate repressed impulses from earlier stages in sexual development and so if they weren't able to successfully master the oral, anal, or phallic stages, those can be repressed. A child learns who the adults are that can provide them a sense of safety and security. The adolescence depends on the success of the prior stages tr as they transition into the psychosexual stages of development. Now adolescence, starting maybe at about 12, Freud believed it ended about 18, new research probably says in the mid-20s. During this period, the adolescent can establish a reproductive system, and this is the last phase of sexual development. 
for both young men and women, there is an increase in focus energy on their genitalia area. This stage is characterized by a rise in rebelliousness against the caregivers and an increase in peer relationships. Adolescents often engage in intense love relationships and can do meaningful work, similar to mature adults. Young people are falling in love, and when love is threatened, it is experienced as the end of the world. If you can take a few moments just to reflect on your first love or loving experience, and when that experience, if that experience ended, how intense were those emotions for you? Young people have a desire to be attracted and attractable to peers, to engage and connect with peers with a level of intensity as they transition during their sexual development. So then what about cognitive development? Paget argued that there are eight stages of cognitive development. Now, I'm not gonna bore you with going through all eight stages of cognitive development. But in childhood, the child is learning to think, to understand objects, the meaning of objects, and to interpret their environment. In adolescence, self-identity occurs. This stage is a period in a young person's life where they can explore aspects of who they are in relationship to themselves and to others. This self-centeredness experience is defined as adolescent egocentrism. It is all about me. Adolescents feel that no one can understand them. At times, they feel that their thoughts, feelings, experiences are not universal, but are unique to their experience. And this leaves them feeling lonely and isolated. Adolescents also engage in more at-risk behavior, such as unprotected sex, substance use, and participate in thrill-seeking situations. There is a belief that they can achieve great success in their talents if their ideas are supported by securely attached and healthy adults. In addition, they may feel that their parents are inadequate or even inferior to them. Many teens feel that they are the center of attraction and others are always talking and thinking about them. It is mostly during this period when parents bring their teens in for counseling due to challenges, although some of the complaints are related to normal cognitive, sexual, and emotional development. Teens are more independent and are able to verbalize their sense of self, causing the potential concerns for the parents. Now, that being said, if you have concerns as a healthy adult in a teen's life, you should seek out professional help. Just because a teenager is engaged in normal developmental activities, they could still be under distress. Working with the profession can help hold a holding environment for an adolescent so that the intensity and severity of concerns are supported. So parents, adolescents are typically brought into counseling for, because of their parents' frustrations. Parents also seek out support because their loved one is hurting and maybe you've tried different things to alleviate their pain, but nothing seems to work. In relationship to adolescent development, focus should be on the importance of independence. They should be able to, you should be able to give them choices 
in their life. For example, a parent may suggest, I'm a little worried about you and I think you could try counseling for a few weeks. You can consider maybe talking to someone at school, maybe talking to someone after school or on the weekends or even someone online. Another suggestion may be, I am worried and it would make me feel better if you had a place where you could talk privately and safely to an adult who has more knowledge than I do in this area. That type of statement actually puts the focus on you as a parent not knowing what to do and allowing the teenager to have choices about talking with an expert. Now, if a parent has minimal concerns but feels their child is just under some stressors, some things you can consider. I notice you are under more stress these days. Maybe you can try doing a sport. Having some friends come over to visit. Maybe an equestrian program. These are just some suggested ways to communicate your concerns and allowing our young people so that they feel that they're having choices in their lives. Since at times the therapeutic environment often mimics real life situations, it can be a safe place for a young person to explore feelings, ideas, experiences with little judgment. It is a place where a healthy adult can hold their anxieties. Clinicians are not parents, so they are not bound by those responsibilities. Clinicians are not peers, so they are not connected with teenagers in the same way. Clinicians can have a holding space for all their stuff, the stuff that is not shared with parents or peers. Another idea to consider is the parents' unresolved issues from their adolescent period may start to arise. A parent may have regrets of things they should have done, and this reflected on maybe their parenting choices or how they obsessed about their child at times. Parents also address all the negative feedback and ridicule that they get from other family members. Everyone tends to have an opinion about what's wrong with the young person and what a mom or dad should do differently. I am often told Adults forget all the bad choices that they made when they were young. They forget what it was like to be young. There is no doubt in my mind that most parents want the best for their children, but there are external and internal factors that are at play. I will leave this by saying a quote from my son in 2012, a 10th grader in high school. If you want a relationship with me, then talk to me about other things, not just my grades. Disclaimer, this podcast is not intended for medical, psychological, mental health, or legal advice. You should seek out a professional for individual and specific questions regarding your overall wellness. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, Call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others. Like below and subscribe to my channel. I will end by saying, the keys to happiness are following the path towards knowing oneself. Ancient Kemetic Proverbs.